I'm Martin Reeves. I lead the BCG Henderson Institute, and you're listening to our Insights Podcast with important authors and new ideas in business. And today, we're very pleased to be joined by Rebecca Henderson, an economist, an HBS professor, an author, a director of several boards of major companies. And she's just written a very timely new book, I think, as I look out of my window at the uh, yellow Californian sky on reimagining capitalism in a world on fire. And literally, it is on fire today where I'm living. So welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So your book is about reimagining capitalism. Let me start with an obvious question. Why do we need to reimagine capitalism? Because it's not working. The original promise of capitalism was prosperity for many, if not all. And uh, excuse me, the world is on fire. Many people are struggling to make a living enormous accelerating inequality and our institutions under enormous stress. And so those are the main dimensions, are they? Inequality, climate, breakdown of institutions, that's the main part of the damage, as it were. I think so. I mean, I could add to that, not responding well to COVID, uh, coming AI robotics revolution, but that would be icing on the cake. Those are the three key issues. Inequality, climate change, declining institutions. And do you think these are new breakdowns? Is this a sort of phenomenon which has risen to a critical pitch? Have these side effects always been with us, do you think? Economic systems have always inflicted environmental damage. Inequality is a feature of capitalism, not a bug. After all, we hope that those who try really hard and invent great new products that we need will get rich, and that will motivate others to do it. And All societies, I believe, have always struggled with the tension between rule by the few and rule by the many. There's always been a temptation to give the majority of political and economic power to a few people. Or I was going to say the few people have always kind of tried to grab it for themselves. So in themselves, these problems are old, old problems. I think what's new right now is that they're happening at a scale and with a speed that we have not seen before. This is most obvious in the case of climate change, where our economy is just so big and so productive that we are generating sufficient greenhouse gases to completely destabilize the climate. In terms of inequality, I think there's a lot of evidence that the new social and political arrangements that emerged following World War II dramatically reduced inequality in at least the Western world, and that it's been gradually increasing since then. And so it's new on a time frame of, let's call it 70 years. And our institutional problems, I think, are intimately related with the increase in inequality and the increasing perception by many that the system is not working for them. And you know whose fault it is. It's those guys who moved in next door who don't look like me. And that's fueling I think, a wave of anger and rising populism, which is putting enormous stress on our institutions. So I think these are old problems, but in their current manifestation, much larger and more dangerous than we've seen before in many periods of human history. So it's the not new problems, but it's the scale of the impact because of the the footprint of business might be the root cause. Would, Would that be a fair characterization? That seems to be blaming business. I'd say our footprint, the footprint of the human race, particularly the richer half of it. But yes, we just got so big and so successful, we're really pushing limits. So let me ask you what it is we need to reimagine, because when we say capitalism, it's a whole cluster of things, right? It's the institutions of capitalism, it's markets, it's how we measure success. 
It's taxation, it's regulation, it's all sorts of things. But which elements in particular do we need to reimagine? Which elements are most problematic, do you think? I think we have lost the balance between business, government and civil society. That we have many reasons to believe a thriving and prosperous society requires democratically accountable, transparent, capable government to balance and partner with business to really make sure that problems like climate change and inequality don't get out of control, and that we need a strong civil society to balance the other two, because of course, government can get out of control just as much as business. So as I think about reimagining capitalism, that's my first port of call, is how do we rebalance our system? It sounds to me like you're saying the reimagination of capitalism actually means the balance of what we call capitalism with other things like damage to the environment or institutions which support capitalism. Is it an issue of balance with other things as opposed to things internal to capitalism or is it both? It's both. But I think the first and most important is that we've let capitalism get radically out of balance. We've really focused on me right now. And as a society, we've lost sight of us and later. I'm a huge fan of capitalism. I'm an economist and a business school professor. I think the free market is one of the great inventions of the human race. But if you don't have the right rules, if you can emit carbon dioxide for free, and if you don't have decent labor legislation that really sets a floor on how we treat people, for example, when you tell people, well, just make money, you're going to get side effects. I mean, one of the easiest ways to make money for some firms is to flood the political system with money. And I mean, that's a great strategy in the short term, but in the long term, I think it's a disaster for the society and indeed for business. I found myself pondering after reading your book on what it was we needed to reimagine. And I was wondering, is it the doctrine of shareholder value maximization, or is it just simply making sure that we do that in our own self-interest on all timescales? Or is it doing that subject to the right constraints? Or is it something more fundamental that's wrong with the mechanism of how needs are served? So Martin, to a first approximation, if we could focus on shareholder value maximization in the long term and with the broader view, I think we would make enormous progress. I think that requires developing a set of metrics of non-financial performance that can allow firms that claim they're doing the right thing and they're building a purpose and they're doing all this stuff. We must have a set of metrics that allows investors to understand what it is they have in mind and track progress over time. And we could talk about it. I think there's some sign that the capital markets are overly short term and one can imagine a number of fixes that would address that. Would that get us the whole way? I don't think it would. I think it would get us to enormous progress. As you know, I think there are billion dollar opportunities to be made in solving some of the problems we face. I think issues like climate change and inequality raise the potential for billion dollar business models that we can really exploit. But I worry that we need more than just, yeah, yeah, it's just maximizing shareholder value in a more skillful way for two reasons. The first is, if you frame your goals as maximizing shareholder value, I worry that you won't actually do so. You know, it's one thing to walk into a room full of people and say, well, you know, you should know that I'm absolutely up for just making as much money as possible for myself and my investors over here. But, uh, but you know, let's work. Let's work together. I mean, I don't know any CEO who actually does that. And being able to say and to believe that, yes, we need to make money and giving a decent return to our investors is critical. But the mission of this company is to make a difference in this world. And here's why one, two, three 
if you can really mobilize a sense of purpose and a sense of intrinsic motivation, I think that gives you a sense of vision and productivity and innovation that you don't get with the sort of more conventional, yeah, yeah, I mean, we're just, we're just here to maximize shareholder value. So it seems like a nuance, but I think actually it's important because I think until we start thinking about the purpose of business in a different way, it's going to be very hard to get the kinds of changes we need, even though the changes, I think, are mostly consistent with maximizing shareholder value. I don't think they're entirely consistent. The one issue I worry about is this rebuilding the political system. I worry that if you were simply doing a net present value, you go, eh, you know, what's democracy to me? What's crony capitalism to me? It's great for the bottom line. And for the next five, 10 years, it probably is okay for the bottom line. But beyond that, it's not good. So maximizing shareholder value, yes. And I'm not a big fan of massive changes to the governance structure of corporations. But strong ESG metrics are talking about purpose might make a difference. And how do we think about the larger institutional problem? So that's interesting. That's quite subtle. So you're saying that, in a sense, there's a renewal of the capitalism we have. If we made money in a long-term interest, we may be able to do so more sustainably. But that's not the whole story. We also need to think about the purpose of what we're doing. That makes a lot of sense to me. Let me ask you which capitalism we're talking about, because of course, capitalism is not one thing. We have Anglo-Saxon sort of market-oriented capitalism. We have capitalism as manifest in, in family businesses. We have the more sort of socially conscious capitalism of Europe. We have the state capitalism of China. Do certain species of capitalism have more problems than others in this respect? There is no perfect form. Every form has drawbacks. The form I'm focusing on particularly here is sort of pure form UK-US Anglo-capitalism, partly because I think it's becoming dominant in many different parts of the world. The Chinese form is complicated, and I don't know enough about China to be definitive. It's certainly different, but they have a bunch of straightforward dog-on-dog capitalism. But of course, the role of the state is quite different. Uh, the European and Japanese capitalist systems are quite different again. They have many strengths. They also have weaknesses. And I am nervous in the US and the UK context of saying, whoa, let's just put employees on the board or, you know, in, say everyone, everyone's responsible for their stakeholders now. Because although I think there may be merit to those moves in some institutional contexts, in the European and Japanese cases, those are shot through with a deep history of what that means and how you manage and how you deal with it. And indeed, in Japan, it's not working really very well at the moment at all. So I'm starting from sort of pure form US-UK, but I think some of these ideas are relevant to the other forms as well. You give five specific ingredients of an alternative, shared value, building purpose-driven organizations, rewiring finance, building corporation and rebuilding institutions. Could you put some color against some of those imperatives? For me, the first step is, as I said, building a purpose-driven organization. And that means not abandoning shareholder value, but thinking of it as a means to an end, where the end is uh, having some kind of broader purpose. I think that's important because it gives you the vision and the organizational capacity to then go and create what I call and others call shared value, where by shared value, I mean really looking around to exploit those business opportunities that both create profits, but also make some difference in the world. Now, this is tricky, of course, right? Because firms, by their very nature, create a bunch of shared value. I mean, unless they're really super problematic. 
But most firms, they create great jobs, they create products and services that people actually need. So what's not to like? This is about, I think, reframing it to push the idea even further. That is, yes, you create good jobs, but are you using a high road employment system? Can you raise wages and change the way you work so that you really address the problem of inequality? Yes, you produce wonderful products and services, but are you creating enormous harm for which you're not paying? And how do you feel about that? Unilever just announced today that they're going to take all their cleaning products to be fossil fuel neutral, which I thought was wild. And of course, there's a strong business case for it. They have uh, brand issues. They believe it will save them money. But it's, you know, I, I don't think they would have got there without their purpose. So shared value is the first step. Why is it important? Because it opens up new business models, begins to initiate a conversation inside industries as to how industries might respond to the massive problems we face in a very productive way. It's clearly not enough. There are definitely problems for which individual firms cannot find solutions. An obvious one is really cleaning up the textile supply chains. The big Western textile firms have been trying to do that for 10, 20 years now. It's super hard to do on your own because the supply chains are really complicated and interleaved. And if you spend too much money, you'll put yourself at a competitive disadvantage. So what we're seeing in textiles and in a whole range of other industries are firms coming together to explore voluntary self-regulation. So I won't use unsustainable palm oil if you won't. I will get child labor out of my supply chain. If you get child labor out of your supply chain, really trying to make addressing these problems pre-competitive. I think in some places, we've seen a lot of progress as a result of that, a lot of invention and uh, understanding of what that might look like on the ground. But in many industries, we're also seeing that it's very hard to enforce that kind of cooperation. So fabulous first step. But you need someone or something to make sure that the bottom feeding firms don't break all the rules and basically break out ahead of everyone else. And there are really two potential referees, if you like. One is government. And I've already talked about how important I think government is and, and refinding that balance. And the other is the capital markets. And the whole subject of rewiring capitalism, I'm sure you have other podcasts on it, but uh, uh, material, auditable, replicable ESG metrics and the concept of universal investors and the whole investment community understanding that they too have an economic interest in addressing some of these problems is, I think, a hugely important pillar of, of what needs to happen. It seems to me that one tricky aspect of this is, is the sort of change problem and the collective action problem. That is, you know, if what we were talking about here was simply a case that certain people didn't have certain information or didn't believe a certain thing, or, you know, mere intent to do good would result in a solution, we might be better off. But in some ways, we're in a subtle dilemma in that, you know, I, I don't know of a CEO nowadays that doesn't agree with the principles of what we're talking about here. And everybody has their sustainability initiatives and everybody has their ESG metrics and everybody's doing something. But we haven't certainly haven't moved the needle on climate change very much as far as I can tell. So what is it that prevents us in spite of apparent goodwill, understanding, commitment, rhetoric, mechanisms, metrics? What's the key impediment to further progress, do you think? I spent the first 20 years of my career studying change in large organizations. I was the Eastman Kodak Professor of Management at MIT, which was a complete coincidence, but deeply funny because that's what I did. I worked with firms like Kodak and Nokia and General Motors and some firms that did succeed in changing, working with large organizations trying to do new things. It's super hard. I mean, what I'm talking about 
is not a small thing. You know, people talk a lot about Unilever as a firm that's out in front on some of these issues. And I'm a huge admirer of Paul Pullman and of Unilever. I first started working with, with Paul and Unilever around these issues, what, 12 years ago? <laughs> and it's hard. It's really hard. And Mr. Pullman was very serious. And he was, I'm not sure he'd frame it this way, so it's my interpretation. He was behind. He was, you know, losing to Nestle and P&G. So he was looking around for a different kind of strategy. And he landed on this and it aligned with his personal values and he picked it up. But oh my goodness, he had to push. It's very hard, which paradoxically makes me one of the more optimistic activists I know, because, you know, it's, you're quite right. We have lots of conversation, but lots of greenwashing, endless conferences. Nobody really does anything. But that's what you'd expect. What we do see are a few firms at the leading edge taking this seriously, demonstrating that it works, and demonstrating how it can be made to work. And what we do see is a gathering belief among employees and customers and others that, wait, this is the way that firms should run. So I think we will see progress, significant progress over the next five to 10 years. But of course, there's no guarantee. So I'm wondering how to think about this as a change problem. So if I, I take you back in time to that time when you were a professor of change management, do I think about this as there is momentum, there will eventually be change, essentially this is a job of acceleration, or do I think about this as critical technical problems that need to be solved, you know, for example, in shared value, how to calibrate the trade-offs between short-term and long-term, for example, is it a technical problem? Or do I think about this as system-level bottlenecks, mandatory measures, or do I think about this as social norms? How do you think about this as a change problem? I wish I knew the answer, really. And I've been reading extensively everything I can lay my hands on around large-scale social change, large-scale system change. I don't think anybody knows. So the change story I lay out in my book is a vanguard of purpose-driven firms demonstrate new business models. They make it plausible and possible uh, to imagine doing this. They trigger cooperative action. As they do that, they build more firms whose business cases are intimately bound up with succeeding on this agenda. They discover that they can't possibly succeed without changing the accounting metrics and the, their conversations with investors. Um, those conversations start to happen because the investors realize like, whoa, our returns are really threatened if we don't make progress against these problems. And here, the overwhelming concentration of wealth paradoxically works for us. Wealth is so concentrated, and I can't make up my mind if this is, I think, is fabulous or creepy, but wealth is so concentrated that comparatively few individuals, if they decided that they really wanted to address a problem like climate change, could push their portfolios to do that. Could just say, no, we're, we, you know, you have to be off 10 years. I need a plan to, to get off. And we're already seeing investors doing that. And that in combination, that would enable governments to begin to move in this direction because the, this will destroy jobs and can't be done, will seem weaker and weaker. And because some of those firms will turn around and say, you know, funding climate denial is completely immoral and totally destructive, and you have to stop doing it. And we will begin to change the normative regime. But, you know, will that happen? And do we need to have the metrics first? Or how important is it to have a political movement really pushing for, say, a price for carbon before that takes off? I am sure that as fast as we can move on all these fronts is good. 
but I do not have a good sense for which the most critical front is. I, I, I don't think anyone does. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us today, Rebecca. I've been speaking to Rebecca Henderson about her new book, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire, which I'm sure will be of great interest to all of our listeners. Thank you, Rebecca. Martin, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.